Please be aware that this is for professional investors only. Good morning. It's Wednesday, the 9th of June, 2021. Thank you for joining us once again for another Morning Expresso. If you're watching live, click below and you'll see uh, various language options where we have a simultaneous translation. We also have the Q&A button, so if you'd like to ask questions along the way, you can do it there. Or you can always, of course, send emails to nordiafunds at nordia.com. Right, this morning we're going to start off with uh, a macro update uh, with our senior macro strategist, uh, Sebastian Garley. Good morning, Sebastian. Good morning. Hello. Sebastian, I saw your slide this morning uh, with an image of some olive oil uh, in relation to inflation discussion. So I'm assuming that that's a reference to uh, Nassim Taleb of uh, Black Swan fame. So my first question is, am I right? Not completely, in the, in the sense, so so what, what uh, Nassif Taleb explained is that there are black swans, which are events that you cannot expect, but it's much older than this. In uh, economics, we have what we call risk and uncertainty, and risk uh, is uh, what you cannot measure and what you cannot expect, and became in finance what we call black swan. Um, uncertainty is what you can safely uh, try to predict, and what we're dealing with is a mixture right now of the two, which is a bit what you're seeing with the uh, olive oil. But if you look on the left-hand side, you can see on the graph that you have what we call break-even inflation, that is inflation as expected by the market, and on the top side, the one which is sliding down from almost 3% is the United States, and down there, very low, are the Europeans sliding up closer to the inflation target of somewhat below 2%. But the black swan uh, of the event is that inflation can be generated even in our decade uh, a little bit differently from the 1970s and 80s, but it is possible, but it is driven by different mechanisms that we, we haven't seen yet. First mechanism is that wage expectations can rise uh, endogenously. That is basically people are more optimistic about the future, particularly so in, and mostly in the United States, and therefore their wage expectations rise and with it, wage growth incre increases with it. And we've seen that in the leisure and the hospitality industry where it's being difficult to recruit people because the wages are so incredibly low, it's difficult to work in this sector. The second element, of course, is uh, price increases in uh, the likes of olive oil. So if you know that inflation is going to be 2% for the next 10 years, then you don't worry too much about it. Prices will increase roughly at 2% in your probably between 1% and 1.5%, and it's part of your pricing strategy. But if prices start to increase for different reasons, uh, you start to become more reactive to the prices. And one of the reasons is that some of the hedges you're taking off are slowly rolling off. And it means that you're afraid uh, that your prices are too low uh, and you, you basically start to mark up re relative to inflation. And to understand this, you have to put yourself with olive oil in Venezuela. If you're selling olive oil in Venezuela, first, very few people are buying it. Secondly, mm -hmm. what you have to do is you have to increase prices ahead of inflation because inflation is rampant. And this mechanism happens when inflation rises most likely about 3% to 4%. Break-evens are roughly below 3% right now on the two-year. Uh, inflation, of course, is much south of the pro this process, but this is the risk. The risk is that suddenly inflation starts to become a beast by itself. 
We are not there in the United States. We're very far from it in Europe. Uh, and it's in, and uh, the Fed eventually will react to this by tapering. Yeah, we've talked about that before, haven't we? The difference um, in the setup in the US and all the stimulus and, and the effect that that's having versus uh, Europe. And there, there seems to be a, quite a big difference. I do just need, need to explain very quickly what I was talking about because Nassim Talib was talking about Bitcoin as an inflation hedge. Uh, he believes that it's a, it's a Ponzi scheme and that you're better off buying a plot of land and growing olive trees. So it does relate to what you're talking about. Not exactly one-to-one, -one, but uh, that was that was where I thought you were going. But uh, thank you for the for the explanation. I think that, that was a good one. Um, let's go call up the, the summary slide then, and uh, we'll, we'll just go through this as ever. If you've got anything to add, uh, Sebastian, then feel free. Uh, first of all, uh, obviously inflation is something to keep a very close eye on. And as we just mentioned, there's a difference between inflation figures in the US where we see them coming down and now in Europe where we start to see them creeping up a little bit now. Um, and then the implications for that, where we have talked in the past uh, on Morning Expresso about listed infrastructure, but also, uh, and this is the heart of today's discussion, actually, uh, low duration uh, solutions, particularly in the covered bond space. Indeed, and I, I think we're quite fans of covered bonds in general, but it, it's, it's this idea that as yields rise, and of course, you need to search for yields somewhere else and in different risk premiums, and that to us means uh, justifying lower duration positions. Exactly. And then uh, last week we had Asbjorn on the um, on the show and he was talking about, you know, uh, whether it's transitory um, inflation or whether it's more uh, you know, long term inflation. Uh, we'll have to see what happens, how the Fed reacts to this now, um, probably in Q3. Um, but the implications for this from our perspective is we prefer um, value and cyclicals and uh, that would benefit from a cyclical rebound, particularly in Europe. Yes, particularly so because I ripped off his presentation, but uh, it's uh, to re-emphasize re <laughs> uh, the point. Honest. I'm absolutely <laughs> honest about this point, and I think he's, he's very right. Great. Well, thank you for reiterating Asbjorn's point uh, from last week, uh, Sebastian, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you. So now we switch to uh, the main section, as, as I hinted at uh, a little bit at the beginning there, we'll be looking at investment opportunities in European covered bonds. And for that, I am joined by portfolio manager, Henrik Stiller. Good morning, Henrik. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. Hello. Henrik, when we started um, drawing investors' attention to European cover bond uh, as an asset class, uh, you know, it was a space that was not really known by many investment professionals um, outside of bank treasury departments. I was just wondering, you know, how has that changed over recent years? And, you know, do you think that cover bonds are still an attractive option, perhaps, for private investors? Yeah, actually, I, I think that... It has not changed that much uh, over the years. Uh, there are still many investors that are not looking into cover bonds for, for various reasons. And uh, I think also I still meet many investors uh, who, who discovers the asset class for the first time. So, so I think this is a slow process and it has also a lot to do with the um, yeah, different restrictions that many investors they have on, on what they, they can invest in. And then we are trying to, to tell investors that cover bonds is more a, a rates product, but that's that's not everywhere where that's the case. So if you consider it more a credit product, then it might be that you, you cannot invest in it. 
So yeah, um, yeah. So, so, so I don't I don't think there are any big changes there. When it comes to the attractiveness of the asset class, uh, I think cowboy bonds are still very attractive, and I think they are I mean mostly attractive relative to government bonds. If we look uh, into the next twelve months. And, and that has to do uh, with the expectations when it comes to tapering from the ECB, as well as expectations on the supply side, uh, when you compare the two asset classes, cover bonds and government bonds. Mm. And you can see on the graph here, uh, this is uh, some yeah, the relative pricing between cover bonds and government bonds in France. And uh, the blue line also shows the relative pricing versus uh, the supra supranational segment. And cover bonds are still yielding 10 to 20 basis points more than these alternatives within the rates space. Yeah. And uh, and I mean, if you look forward, the supply expectations are just much more massive for government bonds than they are for cover bonds with, with very uh, low expectations on supply on the cover bond side uh, and on the government bond side we have huge expectations when it comes to supply and uh, it, it also means that any tapering decision from the ECB will hurt government bonds much more than what it will impact uh, cover bonds. Yeah I wanted to ask you about that because you know over the last decade the ECB has been pretty active in their bond purchases not only on the government debt side, like like you mentioned, but also on the cover bond market. Um, do you see this as a net positive for, for cover bonds? And, and if yes, then what's the potential fallout if um, the ECB does start to gradually withdraw from this policy? Yeah, um, I think, I mean, for spreads, it has been clearly positive for, for the cover bond market because, uh, yeah. I mean, you have a large buyer and this uh, pushes spreads tighter. And in addition to that, I also from, a, I mean, if, if you look at it just from a risk of default perspective, then it's, of course, not a disadvantage to have ECB as an investor uh, in, in the asset class uh, and, uh, because I don't think uh, they want to make a decision that uh, they're, they're going to lose money on their own bonds. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, so and if you look, um, yeah, if, if you if, if you if we look going forward then and, and look into to the ECB, what will happen then if they remove stimulus? Uh, that's where, uh, I mean, it's, uh, it's quite striking how different the outlook is when you look into the next 12 months. And I, I think, first of all, we need to understand that the ECB, they have communicated themselves that they will start to taper the pandemic purchase program. Uh, because it's a pandemic program and it will be yeah. difficult to continue to run a pandemic program when there is no pandemic. <laughs> so, the, so the pandemic purchase program will likely end in March next year. That's right. what the ECB they are telling us. And in the pandemic purchase program, the ECB, they are almost only buying government bonds because all the cover bond purchases, they are in the normal QE program. And this right. will not change to begin with. It's the PEPP program that will disappear. So the impact just from uh, removing the PPP program is that you will have less government bond purchases from the ECB. Right. So, so, so uh, I think that's, that's where we will see the, the main impact. And, and once again, on the supply side, I mean, we expect maybe a negative net supply of 70 billion of cover bonds this year. It's a record 
year in terms of negative supply. And that's because the banks, they are funding themselves directly through the ECB. So they don't need to issue that many cover bonds. Right. On the government bond side, it's a totally different picture with enormous amount of supply due to the pandemic because the governments, they need to, to fund their, their deficits. And there is also on the EU level, additional supply uh, due to these uh, transfer mechanisms that are implemented uh, across Europe. Yeah. Yeah, and, and something else that perhaps worth pointing out is, you know, in the in the cover bond market, we've never had a credit event in 250 years of history. So arguably, they're actually even safer than than the government bonds at the same time as having um, this attractive supply dynamic going on. Yeah, I mean, the, I think the credit side there, uh, there it's uh, I mean, there are no changes. Cover bonds, they 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 had never defaulted, and and this crisis is not. This crisis, it doesn't have it, its roots in the banking business anyway, in, in the banking uh, industry and definitely not in cover bonds. And if you look in the real estate market, in general, the real estate market have just been going up during the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, there are <laughs> a few exceptions in the commercial real estate sector that we avoid to invest in. But apart from that, you have a very strong uh, private residential real estate sector and also on the secondary home side, I think it's important to point out that there the development has been even stronger because there is strong demand for real estate outside of the large cities at the moment. P people want to, to go away for a few days, maybe work from home uh, a few days outside, either outside of the cities and, and so on. So, uh, and in general, when the real estate prices goes up, it's, uh, it improves the safety of the cover pool LTVs. They will, uh, LTVs are moving down. So as an investor, uh, you, you get uh, just uh, uh, yeah, a, more, uh, yeah, a more better collateralized product. So, so what I'm hearing is we, we've got a very solid market at the moment. Uh, there's lots of reasons to be fundamentally bullish on this. But having said that, the cover bond market has actually posted negative returns since the beginning of this year. So I guess the, the natural question is whether this is related to, to the interest rate moves that we've seen recently. And also the follow on question would be, is that a trend that you expect to, to carry on now? Yeah, I mean, most of uh, most of the, if you if you if you just look at the the IBOX cover bond benchmark, you have around five in duration. So so most of the negative return comes from higher interest rates. Yeah. But we also had a little bit of uh, spread widening, uh, maybe around five basis points since the beginning of the year. But there, I think it's important to compare to the alternatives because everything has widened relative to swap. And swap is normally not uh, something that investors can invest in. I mean, it's not supposed to be an investment. You don't buy swaps. No. And uh, so, so if you compare cover bonds to the other asset classes, cover bonds is actually the asset class that have performed the best year to date. The widening in spread is smaller for cover bonds than uh, the credit markets. It's even smaller than uh, German bonds. German bonds have widened more relative to swap than cover bonds. So cover yeah. bonds have outperformed all the alternatives so far this year. So the widening has been smaller. So, so that I think is important to, to say because the, the, you always you need to put your money somewhere. And uh, unless you want to have them in, in a deposit uh, somewhere and, and pay negative interest rates, uh, they need to, to, to be put at work. 
So, so um, and uh, yeah, and if it's going to continue, I mean, the, it depends a lot on the ECB. And uh, I mean, our view is that the ECB, they will move as always uh, very slow. Uh, and uh, and <laughs> the, as I said, the, this pandemic purchase program is the first they 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 will stop. But it's very likely that the ECB will transfer some of the PPP programs powers to the normal QE program. So I mean, before the pandemic, we had a QE of twenty billion a month, and now due to the pandemic program, we are running around one hundred billion a month. And I would say that maybe 30, 40 billion of this will be transferred to the old QE program. So even if the pandemic program ends, the ECB will probably still be buying 50, 60 billion a month. So that's more than double to what they bought prior to the pandemic. Wow. So there will continue to be strong support from the ECB also going forward. And Europe is not in such a strong position. So, so the ECB can just leave. Uh, the bond markets and, and let them uh, handle everything on their own. Inflation expectations are still far below uh, the ECB's targets, for example. And unemployment is also much higher across Europe than, for example, in the US. Yeah, yeah. Just going back to your first point as well, because it's like you say, it's a relative game, isn't it? So, uh, okay, the, the asset class is, and it's, it's not much is it's slightly in negative territory um but much better than than other alternatives you're far too modest to have mentioned it in passing but i think i should point out as well that that you've outperformed uh the the benchmark as well in that time and and generated alpha as well so i just wanted i couldn't let that one slip past without a quick mention uh, as we go along let's say uh, for the sake of argument that as an investor you know I want to have some protection so that my uh, fixed income portfolio isn't sensitive to, to these interest rate uh, movements. Is it possible for me to get exposure to, to the covered bond market without having, you know, that duration component? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, you cannot you cannot get the, <laughs> you cannot do it yourself because uh, I mean, almost all uh, covered bonds that are issued, they are issued between five and 10 years and then, then you get the duration. Yep. Then you could buy just very short cover bonds, uh, I mean, one year or shorter. But the problem with those is that they are just yielding, uh, I mean, the flat to the deposit rate. So then you would just get minus 50 basis points in yield, and that's not so attractive either. So, so uh, what you can do is that you can invest in uh, any of our low duration cover bond products instead of having the, the long cover bond product. So the long cover bond product you see to the left here, it has five in duration. That's the, mm -hmm. yeah, that's just the, the, the duration of the, the average duration of the cover bond market. And in the low duration cover bond product, hedge all the duration out. So the, the duration ends uh, around one year. We have pretty much the same bonds in the two products. So we just hedge the duration away with derivatives uh, on tops. And then you actually get exposure towards the cover bond asset class uh, and you get the same uh, alpha exposure to our alpha capabilities as you do in the long product, but just without any duration. Now, Henry, I know that you and the team have developed a solution where investors can still potentially benefit from these higher returns, despite removing the duration exposure. So um, why don't you tell us about that? Yes, in, in January 2019, we launched our European cover bond opportunities strategy 
Uh, and here we are, um, it's a development of the low duration European carbon bond strategy where we uh, take twice as much spread risk uh, as in the low duration strategy. And we also implement our uh, favorite uh, alpha positions to a larger degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by doing this, uh, we are able to, to have a, a strategy that, uh, yeah, that is expected to return double compared to the low duration product. Mm-hmm. And um, then you will also get uh, a bit more risk. So volatility will be uh, double as well. So instead of 75 basis points of volatility in the low duration product, uh, we will have uh, 150 basis points of volatility in the cover bond opportunities uh, product. And uh, here uh, you can say that uh, 150 basis points is still a quite low level of volatility. So if you compare this to, for example, the long uh, cover bond strategy, uh, there we have around 200 basis points of volatility and there most of the volatility comes from from duration. Uh, But in the opportunities strategy, these 150 basis points, they come almost entirely from from spread risk and uh, our uh, alpha positioning. And uh, how do we then get uh, the spread risk uh, yeah, up to, to higher levels? We, we use, we can, you can say two strategies. First, we are buying a little longer bonds to the opportunities uh, strategy, um, and then you get a bit more spread risk. And then we also uh, use a little bit of leverage up to one time of the, the funds NMB. So it's a quite small amount of leverage uh, but it's still uh, helping to improve the risk return characteristics quite significantly. And cover bonds is really cover bonds is really the perfect asset class to use in products where you have leverage, because yeah. you can repo fund cover bonds at the same levels pretty much as government bonds, so very close to the deposit rate, and it means that. If you buy a bond that trades at minus 20 basis points in yield, uh, it's, it's still quite, it's, it's actually quite attractive if you can repo fund this bond at minus 50 basis points. So yeah. if you repo fund it at minus 50 and you get minus 20 on the fixed leg, then the, the net yield is actually plus 30. So, 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 so then you, you, you get away from the the issue with negative yields at the same time as you you are invested in a strategy with uh, more spread risk and more alpha generating capacity. When you talk about spread risk, what you're talking about, if I've understood correctly, it's more credit exposure. Is that right? Yes, it's. Uh, I mean, everything, all all the cover bond exposure that we that we have in the fund. Uh, we, we, we have twice as much of this uh, uh, cover bond exposure in the opportunities uh, strategy compared to the, the other two strategies. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting what you were saying about it being the perfect uh, uh, solution for, for leverage, because uh, I have a lot of investment bank clients who you know, with fund structuring teams who are using this um, and, and are leveraging on it as well. So, um, and this has been going on for years. So it, it, it makes sense that, 
that, that we have a version as well that's available for our investors without having to go through the, the investment banks. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I mean, as long as the ECB will keep rates where they are now, this is uh, an opportunity that will not disappear. And I mean, we are a long uh, way from, from a situation where the ECB will start to hike rates. Maybe yeah. we are looking in 2025 or something, I don't know, but it's, it's not, uh, it doesn't look like it will be in the near future. No. And uh, as long as this is not the case, we will continue to be able to repo fund cover bonds around minus 50. So all cover bonds that are just trading above minus 50 in yield, they are net net yielding positively when you repo fund them as we do in the cover bond opportunity strategy. Yeah, exactly. So um, so we have those those three strategies. We have the the standard one, five-year duration, we have the low duration, one year, and then we have the low duration leveraged where you have that credit exposure, but with low duration. So um, a complete suite there for depending on your, your, your wish actually it's up to the client right to decide uh, what sort of duration because i know that in your strategy that's not a way that you generate alpha yeah exactly we, we always keep duration exposure very close to i mean close to benchmark in the long in the long product uh, or close to the target levels of one in the in the low duration and, and opportunity uh, strategies so, so we don't take any duration bets. Uh, that, that's, that's correct. Yeah. Great. So what we're going to do now is pull up the, uh, the key takeaways. And um, as ever, if you want to add anything along the way, I will ask at the end as well if there's anything to add in case I've missed something. But um, if we just go through these points, you know, cover bonds offer a unique combination of the safety. You know, we talked about 250 years without a credit event. We have this uh, very positive regulatory uh, uh, framework around them, uh, but also this potential pickup compared to traditional government debt. So um, all of that making it a very attractive asset class and one that, as you were saying right at the beginning, is perhaps even now not that well known. And so if you're watching this now, perhaps you, you're ahead of the crowd still um, in terms of, of the asset class. Now. Of course, there's this natural duration component. You said five to 10 years, but actually uh, we tend to sit more around the five year mark uh, with these, these portfolios, the, the standard portfolio. Um, but we also have these limited uh, sensitivity versions and that doesn't prevent us from, from generating alpha as well in the space. And then finally, the high conviction portfolio focuses on the spread exposure um, allowing to allocation uh, that, that combines the benefits of the cover bonds with our expertise in managing the asset class. And of course, you've been doing this for many, many years and uh, have seen many different market cycles. And that expertise is, of course, built into these portfolios. So um, those would be my summary points. Anything to add, Henrik, before we uh, sign off for this morning? I think the, we talked about it before, but uh, I think the, 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 the most important thing to, to keep in mind here is that we are looking forward to uh, uh, maybe 12 months of, of very, very long, uh, a very, very low supply of cover bonds in the market. And this will continue to support the cover bond market, especially relative to the alternative asset classes. Exactly.
Great. Well, lots of reasons to be positive. Uh, so thank you for joining us uh, today and uh, look forward to catching up with you again in the not too distant future. Thank you, Paul. So next week on the 16th of June, we will be taking a deep dive into uh, an engagement case here at Nordea Asset Management. And that will be with Katerina Hammer, who regulars will know is the head of active ownership here. So in the meantime, don't forget to visit uh, our Stay Alert microsite at nordea.lu and there you'll find all of the past interviews um, and also podcast versions of those interviews. That's it for this week. I'll see you next Wednesday.